Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. You can turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. Uh, We're working our way through the story of Jesus healing a paralytic. And uh, as we've gotten into that story, one of the things that stood out to us is this whole principle that when Jesus heals someone, there's a lot more at stake than just the physical act of healing. And so for this paralytic that was healed, Jesus has a lot more in mind. He's wanting to accomplish a lot more than restoring a man's mobility. Um, specifically, he's doing all of this to set himself up to have an interaction with the religious leaders in Israel and in Judea in that day, and so that he can reveal himself to them as as the Messiah, as the Savior. Uh, This healing was meant to set up a meeting. And so um, the religious leaders see the man who was healed carrying his mat. It's the Sabbath day. They confront him. Uh, The Sabbath was a day of the week that was set aside in the law of Moses to be a day of rest. And the religious leaders felt like carrying anything on the Sabbath was breaking that command to rest. And so Jesus heals this man. He's carrying his bed. And the religious leaders confront him. What are you doing carrying your mat on the Sabbath? And the man says to the religious leaders, well, the person who healed me told me to carry my mat. And so I'm just doing what I was told. And when we talked about that part of the story, I I kind of highlighted for you that what the religious leaders came back with. And so upon learning that this man had been healed and that he'd been told by the man who healed him to carry his mat, The religious leaders say to him, well, who is this man who told you to carry your mat on the Sabbath? And the thing that stands out or you're meant to catch in that verse is this idea that when the religious leaders hear the whole story, do they hear a story of healing? No, they don't. They hear a story of lawlessness, of somebody breaking the commands of Moses. This paralytic man is carrying a mat, and that's not evidence of a miracle or of God at work in their community, but it's evidence of lawlessness. Um, I've got a slide to throw up for you. This is a Rorschach ink, ink blot. Uh, these were popular. Oh, it's in the in the slides there under the teaching section, I think. It's going to be up there. Anyway, there it is. All right. What do you guys see there? What do you see there? Be brave. A moth, a bird, two angels high-fiving. So this was developed by a psychologist in the 20th century. and, And the whole point of it was that human beings, when they observe something, when they see something, when they process things visually, that... Uh, how they process that can give you insight into what's going on inside of that human being. And it's a somewhat controversial theory. And the guy that invented it died before, you know, he had a chance to really solidify his work. Um, But this whole idea that how we respond or how we perceive reality around us maybe has more to say about what is inside of us than what we're actually perceiving 
is, is a concept that I really see at work in this whole situation with the religious leaders, seeing a man who was paralyzed carrying his mat, and instead of seeing a miracle, they see lawlessness. Just like maybe some of you look at this, and you see two angels high-fiving, and others might see a bat, right? And so we would say, well, maybe seeing angels says something about the condition of your heart and your soul. Maybe seeing a bat says something, I don't know. Anyhow, um, we can throw that slide down so people aren't entirely uh, preoccupied with it. Um, Anyhow, the religious leaders don't see a miracle. Right here in their community, a lame person is walking, and they don't see that. All they see is the breaking of Moses' law. And so they ask the man, where is this lawbreaker? The man doesn't know who he is. Jesus has healed him, but he has no idea who the guy is. And so he kind of says, look, I don't, I don't know who he is. Well, Jesus ends up catching up with the man later, makes it clear to the man who he is, and, and the man runs and tells the religious leaders, hey, this is the guy who healed me. He's over there. Go in and talk to him. And this creates a situation where uh, the religious leaders and Jesus are now having a, a conversation, a confrontation. Uh, in fact, the, the Gospel of John says the religious leaders, once they figure out who Jesus is, who the person is who healed this man, they began to persecute Jesus because he'd healed the man on the Sabbath. So this confrontation's happening. This is all kind of reviewed from the last couple of weeks. So sorry if you've been here the last two weeks. Um, it's probably a safe bet that many of you haven't been here for the last two weeks solid just because of how our attendance is at Renewal. And so uh, I feel like it's a limited apology. Anyhow, um, Jesus uses this opportunity then to, uh, to clear things up by upsetting the religious leaders even more. I think sometimes that I am challenged by how Jesus handles confrontation. Because when I, in my personal life, am faced with confrontation, right away I'm trying to do whatever I can to, you know, to tone things down and to be a peacemaker and, and all of that. And when Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders, we don't always see him behaving that way. It's challenging for me. Uh, Jesus is talking with religious leaders, and right away he, he goes off with calling his God his father which the, the religious leaders interpret as him making himself equal with God. And so they're not just upset that he's broken the Sabbath law. They're now upset because he's making himself equal with God. Uh, now, they are facing Jesus, who we believe. Who is Jesus? We believe that he is the Son of God. We believe that he is the Word made flesh, that, that in Jesus Christ, the man, the fullness of the deity, the one who created everything, was pleased to dwell. So contained inside of this human package is God. Who are the Pharisees having a conversation with right now? They're having a conversation with God. What has God just told them? I am God. And yet, is that what they see? In the same way that they don't see a miracle when a miracle happens, they don't see God in front of them when God is talking to them. Instead, they see a lawbreaker. They see a blasphemer. They see uh, a, a character who should be removed in, from society, a danger to everyone around them. Is that who Jesus is? No, it's not. But this is the reality that they see, and so this is the reality that they are living in. 
it's easy for us to understand somebody living in a reality that is not real when we exaggerate it to a great extent. So if I said, you know, that I'm Batman, and you all know I'm, I'm clearly not Batman, like, it, it doesn't matter. You know I'm not Batman, but if I really believe I'm Batman, I'm going to live like I'm Batman, whatever that looks like. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm Batman. Um, so it's, it's easy for us to think about that, but I wonder at times how often our behavior and the reality that we're living in is so impacted by our, our limited perspective that maybe indeed we are not living in the reality that, that is truly real. How many times do we have interactions with other people where we see what we're conditioned to see and not the true intention? I uh, picked up uh, one of our missionaries uh, the other day, uh, Rogers Audi is a missionary that we support. He, he's a, a Kenyan national who's been doing work with education and relief work with widows in Kenya for many, many years. And, and he's, he's here in town. He's speaking at another church today, but he'll be with us next week. I hope you'll come back next week and bring your friends to meet him. Anyhow, I'm, I'm interacting with him a little bit yesterday, just trying to make sure that he's set up with what he needs. And, uh, and I'm making arrangements to go and meet him and pick him up. And he says, uh, he says something about uh, getting a, taking care of his hair and getting shaved. And, and I read it as, okay, he's not ready to go yet. And that's totally fine because I'm not ready to pick him up yet either. So this is working out great. He needs to wash his hair and, and shave and he'll be ready to go. And, uh, and Laura said, I think he's saying that he would like you to take him somewhere where he can get a haircut and a shave. <laughs> nah, that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying at all. I'm living in my reality, and when I picked him up and talked about running to the grocery store to get a few essentials for him, he, he said, well, did you read my message about getting a haircut? And I'm like, oh, you're not going to believe it. I thought you were saying you weren't ready to go yet. And so I'm not living in reality for a brief period of time. Um, no harm, no foul. We'll get him a haircut this week. We'll figure it out. Uh, does anyone know a good place to get a haircut in town? Uh, anyhow, how often are we thinking that we're seeing reality or seeing something for what it really is, and yet we're somehow missing the boat? This is the conversation that, or the principle that guides Jesus' conversation with these religious leaders as we move forward. Uh, we're going to read through some of this. It's kind of, it's a super long monologue by Jesus, but we'll, we'll work our way through it. Because uh, we're Christians and reading the Bible is what we do. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. But there's another who testifies in my favor, favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. Jesus is just talking about how they agreed on what is true back in the day. And it was like, you can't just show up and testify about yourself. You have to have other people vouching for you, saying that you're legitimate. He's like, if you don't believe me, believe these other witnesses that testify to me. Witness number one, he sets up. He says, I, you have sent to John, John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. From what Jesus is saying, he's telling the religious leaders, look, John's been around. I know that you've sent people to talk to him and you've asked him, who is it that this Jesus character is? And I know that John has testified 
to who I am. John the Baptist said of Jesus, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He continues on, verse 35, he says, John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy that light. I know that you know who this guy was. He was a prominent minister. He spoke truth. Many saw him as a prophet, even among the religious leaders. You talked with him. You enjoyed his light. You enjoyed his ministry. You enjoyed hanging out with him. Maybe you enjoyed some of the celebrity that you got from hanging out with him and telling people how you were hanging out with John the Baptist. Uh, Who did he say I am? I know that you heard. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Example one, John the Baptist. He testified about me. Example two, I have testimony that's even weightier than that of John. For the works the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. In this moment, Jesus is referring back to the miracles again. He's saying to them, this man that we're debating about, this whole reason that you're upset about me is because I healed a man on the Sabbath. And usually when miracles happen, people are supposed to say, wow, God must be here. Miracles are happening. And yet even in the face of the testimony of these miracles, the religious leaders are saying God is not here. All we have is a blasphemer. Jesus continues, he says, the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. But you've never heard his voice, nor you've seen him in any form. Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. If Jesus's miracle is the Rorschach inkblot, the Pharisees and the religious leaders look at it and they don't see God. And Jesus says, that says a lot about you. This is like his diagnosis, right? You think that you are living as God's people in connection with him, hearing what he says, but I'm telling you, you've never heard his voice. Who's he saying this to? The leaders of God's people. You've never heard his voice. His word doesn't dwell in you. And you don't, because, I can tell this, because you don't believe in the one that he sent. I was thinking about Jesus saying this to people who really felt at the moment that they are following God more faithfully than anybody else. I have to confess, I've had moments in my life when I've had similar sentiments. God, you're so lucky to have me on your team. I'm doing pretty good at this. You know what? Time to pat myself on the back. Oh, what am I missing? What am I not seeing? What am I unaware of? At moments when God brings that stuff up, oh, Lord, save me. He says to them in verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me and have life. What is the source of life? We believe it's the person Jesus Christ. The Jewish leaders thought that a life of faithfulness to the commands of Moses, a life of faithfulness to God through obedience to the law, was the kind of thing that creates life. And it's understandable that they 
felt that way. There's ways of reading the Old Testament that you might come away with the idea that somehow this whole thing is dependent on me making a choice and doing right, choosing life, not death, choosing God's law and honoring him. It would be easy to come away with that kind of of an understanding if you're misunderstanding what God's meaning to communicate through his word. It's easy to look at the Christian faith and misunderstand what it's all really about. I started reading a book this last week called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. Uh, if you're interested in reading a book, ask, ask me about it. I'll give you the rest of the details. But there's a quote in the, in the introduction to the book uh, or the foreword of the book written by someone else. This is a, a, a pretty famous modern Bible scholar. He, he talks about his own journey of faith and relationship with Jesus And he writes about a season in his life when Jesus was becoming more a set of ideas to him rather than a dynamic person to whom he relates to in his daily activities. There's something about religious systems and religious thoughts that does that to us, where Jesus becomes less a person to relate to and more a system of belief or more uh, a a bunch of ideas about a person. And that kind of thinking and that kind of behaving, it, it puts all of our focus on our own faithfulness, and it sucks the life right out of us. When we look at the scriptures, it would seem that God is telling a different story to his creation than a story of people being faithful and doing what God wants so that they can earn what God has to give. The story of Scripture is not a story of a faithful people. It's a story of a faithful creator. It's a story of that creator's sacrificial rescue of his unfaithful people. It's a story of a pathway to redemption and reconciliation that's opened up because of everything the Savior did and nothing that the faithless people did. The law does not represent a path to God. Here's how you get close to God. Obey the Ten Commandments. That is not true. That's an errant belief. The path to God is not opened up by people's obedient choices. It's opened up by God's promise to bless his people, to make them a blessing. It's opened up by God's sacrifice of showing up and offering his life on our behalf. It's opened up by God showing up and walking, clothing himself in flesh, being among us, showing us the way. The Apostle Paul, who lived so much of his life as a a Pharisee, who was zealous for the ways of the law, had this to say about the law. This is from Galatians 3. He says, Before the way of Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. He says, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. And it protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. Now that way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Paul's writing to the Galatian church, and he's writing to this church because There are people who have fallen in love with Jesus, begun to walk with him. And then in the course of walking with Jesus, they've begun to turn back to the the behavior and the system of religion. Jesus has become less 
a dynamic person that they interact with on their daily lives and more ideas about a person that impact my behavior and what I do and how I live and how I see myself and how I see everyone else. He says to these people, Let's, you've fallen into the law. You're, you've begun in faith. You're trying to finish the law. This is a pathway to death. This is not the way to go. He says, you should be thinking about it this way. The law was there until humanity was able to receive, until Christ came and humanity was able to receive the new thing. And these analogies he's using about a guardian, it's like saying humanity was like a child or you were like children. And when you're children, it's totally appropriate to live under the law. But now that you've grown up, now that we're living in the fullness of what God has done, it is inappropriate to be living under this law. You are missing out on the fullness of who you've been created to be. You should be living in the way of faith, not living in the religious system. The way of faith that Paul calls, uh, the, the way of faith, Paul calls it other things. He talks about living by the Spirit. He talks about knowing Christ. He talks about beholding Christ. He talks about being found in Christ, using all this relational language that describes human interactions. It says, this is how grown-ups relate to God, as if he were a real person that you have a relationship with, and not as if he were a system of beliefs that you decided because of cultural reasons or personal convictions that you were going to be a part of this. He says to the religious leaders, you've been searching the scriptures, you've been studying the scriptures, you think that somewhere in that system, in that law of Moses, you would find life, and you've missed the point that this is all testifying to me. How often do we search the scriptures and come away with similar things? Some approach scriptures looking for ammunition for their religious debates, right? What verse can I throw at this person to condemn them? Or what verse can I use to justify myself so I can feel okay about what I'm doing? One of the things that just bugs me, man, it bugs me, is when you're talking with, uh, I mean, you guys know I'm a big fan of the church working together and doing things together. And, and you start to talk about how you're going to do something or policies you're going to set for this or that. And, um, and, and if someone has questions about what you're thinking, they want to know which verses will you cite to justify what you're doing? And I just want to say, well, the Bible. We're going to cite the Bible. Because we don't pull out this verse or that verse that sounds good to us and say, this is why I'm doing it. Well, we ignore the verses that might encourage us to go a different direction. So I'm like, the Bible. I don't know. We prayed about it. We read the thing cover to cover a few times. And it just seemed like this policy was the best policy. Well, what about this verse? Well, what about that verse? I don't know. We feel like this is what God's told us to do, and we're following the scriptures. And, and there's a few verses that make me uncomfortable, and then there's a few verses that make me sure this is the way we're supposed to go. And so, the Bible. We're citing the Bible. This is not why the scriptures have been preserved for us, so that you could load yourself up with ammunition to justify yourself or to condemn other people. The scriptures are there to testify to Jesus, so that you might have a relationship with the living God of the universe. This is the thing. The scriptures are a little bit like that inkblot test. When we look at the scriptures and we come away with certain ideas, it's probably saying more 
about what's going on in here and who we are than it is saying who it is that God is. Those who search the scripture and see opportunities to leverage condemnation on others are probably testifying more to what's inside of their own heart when they speak out that condemnation than they're testifying to how God actually looks at everything. The scriptures were not written for us to govern our lives with timeless rules. They're they're written to testify to the timeless truths about this mysterious creator who's longing to reveal himself to his creation. They're written to testify about Christ that, that he would be your Lord and Savior. That your life would be governed by his Holy Spirit. Knowing that you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You are you, you are not the one to decide things for yourselves. That was the first sin of humanity, right? The temptation to go and decide things for ourselves. No, you're supposed to be doing this relationally with God. Isn't it ironic that the scriptures become the tools that Christians use at times to decide right or wrong for themselves? Devoid of any kind of conversation with a living God about it, they may read the scriptures and begin to make decisions about what should be right or what should be wrong. This is probably why we have evidence in our society and all societies of Christians reading the scriptures and coming away with completely opposite opinions about things. Because those opinions say more about what's already in here, not about what the scriptures really say or what God really wants us to do. When you look at somebody else, you're tempted to condemn or to judge. Be reminded. They're not their own. They were bought with a price. There is someone who God sacrificed everything for. And who are you to say to your brother or your sister, you're out of the family? When you are tempted to look at the scriptures and justify yourself, take a moment. Say, Lord, Holy Spirit, search my heart. See if there's any wickedness inside of me. I am justified because I am loved by the creator of the universe. And he has said, I am his son. And that's all that matters. We kind of sang that in a song. Is that enough? Is that enough for you? I have a theory. I don't know if it's true, but I have a theory that if we are having to go to the scriptures and handpick verses to justify what we're doing, it just might be that we're somehow living in sin. It just might be, especially if we're trying to stretch things or divorce things from their original context or things like that. Like it just might be that we're missing the boat somewhere. I had a friend this week who said, if you're, if you're coming up with a new idea that you've never heard before about God, you just might be moving toward heresy. I thought, yeah, that's pretty good. That's probably right. I mean, people have been walking with God for a few thousand years. You really think you're the first guy to figure it out in 2,000 years. Hey, actually, this is how it goes. Well, good for you. Um, the scriptures aren't there so that we can forget our place and then use them for our own agenda. They're there that we might have a revelation of who this God is, that we might bow low before him. We might be overcome in, in uh, praise and worship. And overcome by his greatness and his grandness. He's the only source of life. I think I'm out of time.
And now I just feel like I'm talking in circles. So let's let's skip to the end. Ah, one of the one of the really cool things about the way that God interacts with people is even when they miss the boat, even when they don't get it right, he serves the ball up to them again. I skipped over it, but there's a line where Jesus says, look, I don't need John to testify about me. I'm paraphrasing here. You won't find it in these exact words, uh, but it was somewhere in there. One of the parts I skipped over. He says um, it was in my notes, but then I skipped to the end. So <laughs> sorry. Uh, he says, I don't need human testimony, but I'm telling you this, that you might be saved. He's hoping there's maybe just a chance that one of the Pharisees sitting there at the table having the discussion will say, oh, that's right. John said that about him. And I, I believe John. I trust in John. I think John is legit. Maybe I'll entertain the idea that what I see before me is a miracle and not blasphemer. And I think God is so faithful to come back to us again and to meet us where we're at. So for this Pharisee or whoever it might be in the group, he's bringing up John, saying, maybe this will be the thing. I'm telling you this so that you might be saved. And then he comes to us and he, and he says, you didn't listen to me yesterday. But today, James, I still want you to be saved. So I'm going to tell you this again. And isn't that different than how we are at times, right? Like I have told that person time and again, I'm done. I'm not telling them again. I'm not giving them another chance. I'm tired. That's not who our God is. We know that there's a judgment day someday at the end of all time. We know that God doesn't always deliver us from the consequences of our decisions. But we see this portrait of a God who is so patient and so kind and so willing to serve that ball in your court one more time and see if you'll hit it back this time. And even when you get it wrong, you maybe get a ball served to you again. We'll try again. Maybe I shouldn't have abandoned my notes. I'm getting concerned about how this thing uh, is going to end up. <laughs> but I can take some encouragement from the fact that you, you get to the end of this uh, chapter 5, last couple of verses. He says, if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But since you did not believe what he wrote, how are you ever going to believe what I say? And then that's the end. And then you chapter five or chapter 6 Six starts, five starts, six starts. I'm questioning that. Six starts. All right. Chapter six starts, and we're on to the feeding of the 5,000, just like that. So that was the end of his sermon. How are you ever going to believe what I have to say when you won't even believe what Moses said about me? The ball's in their court, right? And, and I think that's, that's a, a comforting thought for me because these things don't always end as smoothly as I thought. Exhibit A today. Um, but I guess I'm going to serve the ball into your court. Yeah. So we believe that every believer has the spirit of God inside of them, working with them in relationship. And, and how much we participate in that is probably where some of those choices and those decisions come into play. Uh, you have a role. Because it's a relationship, yes, you have a role to play. Uh, salvation doesn't come uh, through any works of your own, but a relationship is built by choices that you make every day in the same way that your relationships are built in the choices that you make every day. And relationship happens in the context of the choices that you make every day. And so you probably know this. If you have a relationship in your life where there have been struggles, it's because there's a history of choices that have been made on both sides 
that have made things difficult at times. How wonderful to have a gracious God who, who in a miraculous way, can wipe those things aside in our relationship with him in a way that just we don't experience enough in our human relationships. But um, we believe that every believer has a relationship with Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you have a relationship. The Spirit dwells in your heart, testifying that you are a child of God, and the Spirit is giving you insight into God that is unique to your own context, your own life, and the revelation that comes there. 